Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are in a, a, a series that we've been doing uh, for the past uh, couple months on our church's mission and values, uh, right? Asking the question, why do we exist? What are we here to do as a church, our mission? And who do we want to be as a people? What are those priorities that shape our lives and our life together? Those are our, our values. And so uh, if you remember the last couple of weeks, we've been on this uh, value of ours uh, of reconciliation. Right, the way that we put it on our website uh, is uh, that we believe the church is meant to be an uncommon family in a world divided, uh, I believe we say, by race and class, political ideology. We want to come together as an uncommon group, uh, an uncommon family uh, who might otherwise be strangers, but have instead been made brothers and sisters in Christ. And so um, we are, uh, we're going to talk about that. Today's going to be the last day uh, that we spend on that particular value and then move on to our last couple uh, before we're done. But the question that uh, this reconciliation value puts before us and what we're going to consider today is how can we experience unity in the midst of diversity, right? How can uh, many live together as one when they're still many, right? When, the, uh, when they still share different experiences and stories and values and beliefs, how can the many come together as one? You know, this is really a, uh, a story and a question that uh, you can trace throughout the biblical story, and we're going to do that some together. We see that this, the, the one, one way to read the story of the Bible is God's commitment to be glorified, to glorify himself through the expression of unity and diversity, through bringing many together under one king and in one family. And so um, we're going to look at Revelation uh, chapter 7 today, because one of, the, one of the truths about reconciliation, right, imagining us as an uncommon family, is that if we look in our past, it's easy to be overwhelmed by pain and sorrow. Even if we look to our present, it can be easy to be overwhelmed by just the sheer amount of difficulty that's involved in working through difference. And so, uh, Revelation prompts us to look to the future, right? To look at the destiny of the church and the destiny of the world to help move us from cynicism and despair into hopefulness, into hope. And so, uh, if you would, uh, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading this morning from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Hear the Word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, when, uh, when Walt Disney... Uh, imagined what he hoped to build in Orlando, right? When he moved and uh, the Disney World operations came to Orlando, he did envision building a Magic Kingdom uh, to roughly uh, match what was going on out in California. But his dream for this project, uh, what he dreamt of building was uh, Epcot, uh, the, the second park in Orlando, EPCOT, which stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. In his vision, his original vision for EPCOT uh, was that it would be a theme park there in a circle, right, with a big ball in the middle. And then out from that, uh, he would actually build a city. Uh, He envisioned up to 20,000 people living at EPCOT. He envisioned that the theme park would be a kind of a permanent World's Fair uh, where uh, innovation could be worked out where people could look, uh, again, to the prototype community of tomorrow, where people could look at what was going on there and develop ideas and possibilities for what their life and their cities might look like. First, he had to build the Magic Kingdom, and then he uh, sadly died just before the Magic Kingdom was completed. And subsequent uh, generations of leaders at Disney decided to scale back his vision for Epcot and just go to kind of a theme park uh, more traditional. So that's why when you go to Epcot now, it's just the, you know, you got the future stuff and then, you know, the national place where it's now the park where dad can get a beer, right? That's the, that's Epcot. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's kind of scaled back what he wanted. Like so many utopian visions, uh, it ended up largely unrealized and scaled back. You know, uh, Christ Church in town as a name of a church is already a bit of a mouthful, right? It's a little bit to explain to people. If it wasn't so many words, uh, to name a church the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, right? That's a, that's a mouthful. But it also comes very close to the biblical vision of what the church is meant to be. That it's meant to be something like a prototype community of what will one day be true of the human community, right? When the Holy Spirit falls on the church at Pentecost, which we celebrated last Sunday, When the Holy Spirit falls on the church at Pentecost and Peter is asked to explain what's happening here, he goes back and he quotes from Joel chapter 2 when he says, in that day, right, in that day, meaning at the end, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and your daughters. 
Right? So what Peter was saying is the spirit of the future, the spirit of that day, the spirit of God himself will fall on the church and actually make the many one, right? Remember, that's what happened at Pentecost. The many languages heard the one preacher and many, they heard him in their language. That, the, that what will be true in the future, that you'll be made holy and righteous, the Spirit's going to be doing in you now through sanctification, making you new. You who are divided are going to be made towards one. You who are broken are going to be made whole. That the church is meant to be in a fractured world and an unholy world is meant to be a prototype community of what God is doing and will do for the entire world. So in a way, Christianity uh, is a a type of utopian vision, right? If you read some of the promises uh, of the prophets, right? Isaiah chapter 11, that, uh, that in the last days, the lion will lay down with the lamb and all of our weapons, our swords will be uh, hammered out into pruning hooks, right? That it's a vision of a utopia, but it's a realistic vision. It's a humble vision because, of course, of what we know to be true about ourselves, because of what we know to be true about sin, right? That to achieve this kind of community, this kind of community of tomorrow, the kingdom of heaven on earth, we fight against a certain kind of gravity that always seeks to hold us down, what the scriptures call the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The devil, the enemy of God, God and his kingdom, the flesh, that, that part of ourselves that works against holiness and righteousness and love. In the world, like all those mixed messages and corporate uh, uh, ideologies and idolatries that work to, to restrain us, and hold us back. And so in a moment where we've been feeling the weight of that gravity, right? In a moment where, where I think all churches around the country have been feeling the weight of all the ways that the world, the flesh, and the devil work against us living in this reality of a reconciled community from every tribe, tongue, nation. We're going to look at Revelation you know, Revelation, I think we think of Revelation, and this is, you know, we're just doing a one sermon here. We're not doing a whole series in Revelation. We've preached from Revelation before. Um, but we tend to think of Revolution as the weird book about the future, right? It's the weird book with all the symbols, and what it's mostly about is stuff that's, you know, going to happen after Jesus comes back, and it's really hard to understand. And there's parts of, it that, there's parts of that that are true, right? There are a lot of, of symbols and imagery that's, that can be tough to sort through. But Revelation, uh, more than just being about the future, it's a, it's a part of a genre that we call apocalypse. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic book. An apocalypse means not so much a vision of the future, but a, an unveiling of reality. That's what it comes from. It means to, to unveil, to pull back the curtain. So it's not just some, you know, sweet by and by, what's going to happen one day. It's an attempt to, to pull back the curtain, to see what's real. Right? Yes, in the, in the future, what's real will be all that there is. This unreal world of sin and death will fade away. But in the meantime, it's meant not just to be a, a vision of the future, but a vision of what's real if we had the eyes to see it. A vision of what, uh, of what ultimate reality is. And therefore, it has a power to affect our present. Right? Not just to give us hope for the future, but for us to get a new and, and, and better set of eyes to think about our present. And so we're going to look here at this vision, 
And the first thing that we're going to see, we're going to look at three things, many people with one identity, many voices singing one song, and many troubles, but one comfort. First, many people, but one identity. The first part of Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8, that we didn't read is a vision of the nation of Israel, right? It's uh, the 144,000 made up of every tribe uh, of Israelite coming together to the throne. And in the back part of 7, which we just read, is the vision of the Gentile nations coming to, into the kingdom, right? This people uh, that I'll read again, verse 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. This is a picture of the entire uh, multitude of humanity, right? Every nation, that's every kind of socio-political grouping, every nation state, every language, all the linguistic groupings of humanity, all of the ethnic groupings, of humanity. Basically, this is saying any way that you can slice up humanity by different, by different identity markers, they are all present here in this great multitude that no one could number. This is the fruit of the Great Commission when Jesus says, go into all nations and make disciples. This is those all nations of disciples now coming around the throne to worship the Lamb. And though they are uh, made up of all of the different nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, they join together in a certain practice. They're all waving palm branches together, a symbol of victory and peace, right? They have reached the end of their story, right? The end of history and are celebrating the victory of God, the victory of the Lamb. And they're wearing all of them together, white robes which we're told uh, we have to wait until verse 14 to learn the meaning of the robes. But there we learn they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Right, so here it is, many different peoples made up of many different uh, types of identity coming together and all wearing the same clothes, wearing a robe that has been prepared for them through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A new identity, washed and made white, that they wear together. This new identity doesn't obliterate their differences, right? The, the, uh, the author can still claim that they are a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? He, he didn't look out and go, oh, look, a bunch of people in white. They, they all look the same. He said, no, there's still these differences, but they're all clothed in a new outfit together. They're all washed white in the blood of the Lamb, putting on a new identity that includes and sums up and sanctifies and makes holy all of these other identities. And here we see really the fulfillment of a significant plot line within the story of the Bible, how the many can come together as one, how God can be glorified through this expression of diversity giving way to unity. The story of God being glorified through unity and diversity really goes back before creation even began in the eternal trinity, right? God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, a, a multitude, three, 
giving glory to one another, one. God being glorified in both diversity and unity. And then in creation, God makes the creation to glorify himself, and he doesn't make a whole bunch of the same things. He makes a pluriform world of many different things, right? Look at the, the incredible diversity of creation that the fish are not the birds or not the giraffes or not the elephants, right? Even within the human family, there's a created diversity in the midst of it. And yet all of it made together and filled, made for the glory of God, that he would be all and fill all and be glorified by all. But of course, in the, when sin enters the world in the fall, diversity turns on itself, right? Adam and Eve, maybe that purest picture of human diversity, man and woman made to be helpers, that becomes fractured and they turn against one another. God, the woman you gave me did this to me, right? Then we see the first brothers, Cain and Abel, the diversity of vocations, one a farmer and one a rancher, turn on one another, their diversity not being a source of richness and beauty, but instead being a, uh, the occasion for jealousy and violence. We see at the Tower of Babel diversity coming together in an idolatrous unity, right? The many peoples of the world saying, I know what we'll do. We'll build our way to heaven. And God says, no, no, not all diversity is good diversity, right? Not all unity is good unity. And so he frustrates them and makes the, the languages of the earth and sends them out frustrating them in their diversity. God makes his covenant with one man and one family, the people of Israel, and says of the many of the diverse family of humanity, there's going to be one people that's mine. There's going to be one people that's going to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the multitudes, to bless the many through the one. When he sends them into the promised land, he warns them against a false unity. Right? He warns them against uh, intermarrying and interworshipping with the gods of the Canaanites. He says, look, in this fallen world, not all unity is good unity. Right? You shouldn't seek unity with your Canaanite neighbors by worshiping Baal. You need to be set apart and distinct. And yet through it all, there's this promise that all of the nations would be blessed through the line of Abraham. There's a vision in both Micah and Isaiah, of all the peoples of the earth streaming into the temple to worship Yahweh, to worship the true God. In Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out on all peoples. The story of Acts is the story of the gospel going out to the Greeks and to the Romans and making one family out of the many. So many of Paul's letters in the early church are about helping these people to figure out how to live together. Right, this most of your New Testament is Paul writing to a Jew Gentile congregation and trying to help them figure out how they're to live as one. How the many become one. Do the, do the Gentiles have to get circumcised? Do the Gentiles have to change their dietary patterns? Can the Israelites live within these weird Gentile dietary laws and or patterns? Right? That's a, that a lot of it is in the gospel, how do the many live together as one? How does the one new humanity, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 2, come together and learn to live as one, in one identity? You know, nearly every church in the New Testament, I think you could say every church in the New Testament, is what we would call a multicultural church. Every single New Testament church uh, was a coming together of difference into one, and it was not without bumps along the road. And then we see this picture at Revelation of the fruit of these labors. 
We see where the story is going, that it ends up with every tribe and tongue and nation clothed in one new identity, coming before the throne in worship. We should talk as a church for a minute about how we think about our identities as human beings, right? How we think about how we answer the question. Identity is basically the question, who are you, right? Who are you? There's all sorts of ways that a person can answer that question, right? You can answer it by where you grew up or what you do for a living. You can answer it by your story. You can answer it by your family. You could ask, you could answer it through your ancestry. You can answer it through some of your beliefs and what you hold dear. But how you answer the question, who are you, matters. And there are endless ways that we can do this, right? There's endless ways that we can construct an identity for ourselves or that we, can, that we can talk about our identity. The world tells you that your identity is something you construct for yourself, right? That who you are, uh, it's about how you, how you think of yourself and how you want to present yourself to the world. And so we build identities. We build identities around our political ideologies, right? It matters to me that I'm seen as this kind of person and not this kind of person. We build our identities around our ethnic heritage. We build our identities around our vocations. There's all sorts of ways. We build, we build our identities around our sexuality and our gender, right? all these things that we're swimming in right now. And the scriptures say that in, in spite of all of the different ways that you can think about identity, Right, and some of them matter. Some of them, you know, male and female hardwired into creation. Ethnicity, a part of the natural diversity and beauty of this world. These are good things. But when made into ultimate identity marker level things, they can lead to division. Right, they can lead to ways that we set ourselves off and over and against one another. Instead of recognizing that part of the, the beauty of the gospel is that we who are many are clothed in one dress, one robe, brothers and sisters, washed and made pure in Christ. Our identity markers, the other identity markers, not eradicated, but subsumed into this diverse chorus of voices in one new identity in Christ. There's a wonderful uh, book that's come out uh, by a Duke, soci- Duke uh, University sociologist called Breaking the Social Media Prism. The guy's name is Chris Bale, and here's his basic thesis. He said, you know, most, of, for, most people have assumed that the way social media works is that it siphons us off into little echo chambers, right? That you end up mostly and only interacting with people who agree with you. Right, So you read news sources that agree with you. You follow friends that already agree with you. And so and this is how radicalization happens. Right, This is how we end up pushing to the poles. Right, So deep red and deep blue because we live in these echo chambers. Well, Bale says that's actually not true. If you look at uh, this experiment that he did, he said that social media basically is about identity creation and projection. Right, That it's not so much that we end up in echo chambers of people who agree with us. It's that we curate an identity of how we think of ourselves, of who we want to communicate with, which virtues we want to identify and say, hey, I'm this kind of person, not that kind of person. And then we put them out into the world and it creates greater affinity with those who agree with us and greater animosity with those who disagree with us. And so it's about this cycle of identity formation, which... I, think you, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that's a vicious cycle of self-righteousness. 
right? That, I mean, the social media is new, but the, the human heart is not especially new. Us finding ways to say, I'm a good person, not a bad person, right? I'm the kind of person I identify as virtuous, not the kind that I identify as wicked. That's not new. Finding ways to perform. Jesus gave significant words to this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Do not do your acts of righteousness before men in order to be seen by men. But when you give, give in secret. When you pray, pray in secret, right? That performative identities have been a problem for a very long time. And social media has just poured miracle grow on them. And so whether it's on social media or IRL in real life, we need to come to ground our identity more and more in a one new robe that we wear together. Right? That my righteousness, my righteousness is not something that I construct and perform. It's something that I receive. Right? My righteousness, if it's left up to me to construct it and perform it, it's going to be what Paul called filthy rags. It's going to be self-righteousness. It's going to be pride. It's going to be flesh. My righteousness is never something I can earn or perform. It's something I receive. Washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Made new. Made one. Made holy and righteous and pure. Many peoples coming into one identity. And then many voices forming one song. I love this. There's no explanation given. We're told that these are people, somehow John knows that they're from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And yet he can make out the song that they're singing. Right? The song that they're singing when they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right, Many voices, many different languages, but they're singing the same song. They're singing a song about the salvation of their God through the work of the Lamb of God. Friends, our only hope of unity in this church or anywhere else is in singing the same song. Right? It's in singing a song of worship to Jesus. Right? It's, it's, it's facing in the same direction facing a solid center point, here the lamb who's on the throne, in, in, in orchestrating our voices, our many diverse voices, into one song about our Savior, right? Unity has to come together around a solid point, right? Unity has to come together around something that we love, around something that we cherish, around something that matters more to us, than all of the other things that we deal with and maybe even disagree about. It has to be about something solid and central. And this picture shows us that in the church, the solid and central point is Jesus. That he is the one who brings the many together as one. His, he is the one who rewrites our stories into stories of salvation. He's the one who enables us all to lend our voices as diverse as they may be into a common song of worship around his throne. St. Augustine, in his book, City of God, makes the profound insight that what binds a people together is a common object of love. Right? Augustine says that that's the difference between the city of man and the city of God. That the city of man is humanity ordered around love of self, and we see it everywhere we look. In the city of God, that is the church, is a new city 
oriented around the love of God. That it's the love of God that joins the city of God together and makes it one. Right? That that is that, that all human societies are ordered by a common love. When the common love breaks down, the common priority breaks down, societies fracture. And in the church, we come together around a common love, a love of Jesus that orders our lives, that gives voice to our songs, that orders the way that we live our life together as a life of humility and repentance and obedience and joy and worship, all coming together in one song. You know, it's only possible if we play the same music, right? I mean, that's the difference, right? You know, if you go to a symphony and hear all of these people playing different instruments and yet coming together in one song, it sounds beautiful. Yet if you walk in, uh, no offense to anybody who's in, you know, their middle school band or who was in their middle school band, you can come into a different group of people with the same level of, you know, the same instruments, and it sounds like they're all playing their own songs, right? It sounds uh, disharmonious. I may have made up a word. Um, uh, I wasn't a musician. But part playing together takes practice, right? You don't just walk in, pick up your instrument, and play like Duke Ellington or play like Yo-Yo Ma, right? You, you have to learn. You have to learn to play your instrument. You have to learn when to step up and when to step back when to create space for your neighbor to play their instrument, and when to listen. This is something like Paul's metaphor, right? Paul uses so many metaphors that basically get at this, that it's, as Willie pointed out last week, we're like a body, a diversity of parts, but with one function. Or we're like, uh, we're like a building being built up, a diversity of stones being built into one building. The many becoming one. And then finally, we are a people of many troubles, but one comfort. I love the exchange in 13 through the end. So one of the elders, this is one of those figures seated around the throne, one of the people who's been guiding John through this apocalyptic vision of heaven. One of the elders addresses me, addresses John, saying, who are these? And John uh, looks at him and says, you know, right? He says, why are you asking me? Yeah, I thought, you're the, you're the tour guide. Uh, you tell me what's happening here. And the elder answers him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, the great tribulation. Uh, we have to do a little bit of re-education. Um, if you read the Left Behind books or saw the Kirk Cameron movies, um, the tribulation here, basically, uh, it means the sufferings and struggles of all of God's people throughout the entirety of the age of the church. Right, so this isn't looking at a particular time, right? This isn't after the rapture, but before the return, and then after the, you know, after the Russians or whatever, however the story goes in the, in the movie. This is, the tribulation is, a, is, is the, uh, the way that the prophets and the way that the author of Revelation, John, describes the time of testing and trouble that the church goes through. And it's been the same, uh, the same struggle that took place under Greece and under Rome, uh, that takes place all around the world even today. That, so even all of the struggles of 2020, 2021, all of the struggles of the church to live our lives in the world, that is the great tribulation. It may vary by type and sort, 
right? The, 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 the tribulation of the Christians who are dying under Nero, the Christians who worship uh, in house churches in China or in secret in Afghanistan, that's one kind of tribulation. But the kind of tribulations that we live through are also trials and testings. This is a way of saying, look, as long as you live as a people of the next world, but in the midst of this world, you will have troubles. You will have struggles. You, you don't get to avoid the tribulation. You live in it and through it. And these are the ones who've come through it and are now receiving their reward, who are now looking on Jesus, who are looking on the Lamb and praising him. This story, uh, in a really beautiful way, the, uh, the author uses the imagery of the Israelite Feast of Tabernacles in this story. So the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was the story when all the Israelites would get together uh, and they would live in tents. Tabernacle means tent. And so they would get together and it was a commemoration of when, God, when their ancestors lived in tents and were led through the wilderness into the promised land. One of the things that happened at the Feast of Tabernacles every year was the waving of palm branches. We see that again here. One of the things that happened when they would live in these temporary shelters, and here we get uh, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That's literally, he will tabernacle them with his presence. And then the language of they will hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, uh, points to the, the different trials that God protected his people from on their journey through the wilderness. And so what John is doing and what this vision is doing is this is showing people who've reached the end of their pilgrimage, the end of their journey through the wilderness of this world, and now are no longer in living in tents of their own making, but are sheltered by God the Most High, who no longer live with the hunger and thirst and lack that marks our life in this world, but now they're provided for by God himself who satisfies their needs. All of our stories are part of this journey through the wilderness of this world, uh, through the tribulations that we suffer. And we all come together to one comfort in Christ, the one alone who is able to provide for our needs and satisfy our hunger and dry our tears. We live uh, here and now with the experience of Jesus' comfort, of him shepherding us and loving us through the, the turmoils of this life. In fact, um, we're gonna, the, the next series that we're going to do after this, through the summer, we're going to do a series on Psalm 23, on what it means to say that Jesus is our good shepherd who restores our souls. But I love this vision that Jesus is their comforter and that he's their shepherd. I love verse 17. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. This is a weird, that's a weird little bit of metaphor there, right? The lamb becomes the shepherd, right? The lamb, the one who's weak and small and suffering, becomes the shepherd, the one who is capable and strong and leads. And I think what this is pointing to is Jesus's statement that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That the good shepherd becomes the one who dies in order that he can provide for his own in order that he can lead his own. And we'll end with this. I love this promise. God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. You know, friends, we learn as a church, you know, so much of our life as a church is anticipating the future, 
right? Anticipating the future unity of the church and living it out in the present. Anticipating the future worship of the church and giving voice to it in the present. And so much of our work in this area is anticipating the tear-wiping hand of our God and living with it in the present. That we are given to one another to wipe one another's tears. We are given to one another to be one another's comfort, to love one another, to care for one another. One of the roles that we have as the body of Christ is to be the hands of God that wipe away the tears that we weep, even in the present. We've said that we have to come together unified around one love, a common love of Christ as our center. But we also come together around love of one another. Right? Jesus said the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's not in the second. It also counts if you get to it and if you have time. Right? It's not, it's not a, um, this isn't a second place finish like, you know, by a mile. This is right next to each other. This is saying you can't have one without the other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, and so as we face towards our center point in Christ and sing one song together, we also learn to look towards one another with empathy. Look towards one another with compassion. Look towards one another in a way that says you matter here and your voice matters here and your story matters here. To be for one another the compassion and tenderness of God for one another knits us together in unity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to be one. Uh, We long to experience what uh, you yourself prayed before heading to the cross, that we would be one as you and the Father are one. And so, Lord, we pray that you would knit us together as a church family. Um, Lord, uh, nearly everything that gets in the way of unity uh, is somehow connected to sin. Our pride, our slowness to listen, Uh, just the ways that we're infected and indoctrinated uh, by the voices of the world. And so, Lord, part of our unity is just our growth in sanctification. It's our growth in holiness and wholeness. Our growth in the the fruit of the Spirit, being able to be patient and kind and gentle and uh, all of those things with one another. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live up to our calling, to live into the unity that one day around your throne we will know perfectly. And here in this life, we know only in glimpses and in fits and starts. Uh, But Lord, help us to truly and really live as your community, brought together in unity by Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.